You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Sports is drama. Sports is glamour. Sports is interesting people doing fascinating things with climaxes. People win, people lose. And so there are great stories there. Legendary sports writer Frank DeFord. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. For more than half a century, Frank DeFord wrote for Sports Illustrated. And for 37 of those years, he was also heard regularly on NPR. And for many years, seen regularly on HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel. Six times, Frank DeFord was named National Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association. But it wasn't until 2012 that Frank DeFord finally wrote his memoir, a book he called Over Time. I had met and interviewed Frank a couple of times before this, but it was really nice to be able to sit and chat with him about his memoir as we sat in a crowded Washington, D.C. hotel lobby. So here now, from 2012, Frank DeFord. I love your introduction, or the the title page, where it says, By Frank DeFord, as told to Frank DeFord. (laughs) I didn't realize you'd never written a memoir before. Well, I did write a memoir, in effect, when my daughter died of cystic fibrosis. And so that was essentially a memoir, or certainly um, something along that line. And, and it gave me the advantage, though, Bill, of, of writing a much happier one this time. Had I, written, had I not written that, I obviously would have had to include a great deal of that in this book, and it would have been a, a, a different product altogether. But this is, this is a much happier piece of work. How did you decide the time was right for this book? I didn't. I didn't think that a, anybody wanted to read a writer's memoir because writers don't do anything. They just write. You know, unless you're George Plimpton or somebody doing daring do stuff, and I'm not. But, um, but I bet he never uh, got in the ring with a bear. No, that's true. I did. I, I have done a little bit of that. I. I, I played against the Harlem Globetrotters in Italy, which is the height of my basketball career. But that's really good because I'm six foot four, and people always naturally ask tall people, "Hey, did you play basketball?" And now I can say, "Oh yeah, I played a little pro ball in Italy." And so, so that was worth it. See, so you as a writer know the, the value of the literal meaning of words. Oh, I. Oh. <laughs> If I know nothing else, and I do know nothing else, I'm, I'm strictly a writer. But anyway, I was not planning to write a memoir, but Terry McDonald, who's the editor of Sports Illustrated, wanted me to write about the early days of the magazine. Then Morgan Intrican of um, uh, Grove Atlantic Press said, why don't you turn it into a book? And I said, ah, no, there's not enough there. And my wife who usually stays out of these things, she heard enough stories late at night to say, yeah, there are. Yeah, there are. She, she might have said it a little more cynically than that, but really, Carol was the one who, who, who made me turn the corner and, and say, okay, I'll try it. But I'll also bet that now that Mad Men has been out for a few years and is very popular, I'll bet more people will, will kind of get it, will, will kind of understand the milieu you're talking about. Certainly, that, those years, the 1960s and, 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 and 70s, 
magazines are really the first cousins of advertising. So if you saw Mad Men, you, you, you know what what magazines were like. I, I take one offense at Mad Men. I think it's Mad Men. I think it's it's very accurately done. Except people didn't drink neat. People drank. I keep saying this. You needed a drink with ice cubes in it and mixture because you were going to stand there and drink for a while. That was the idea. The idea was conviviality. The idea was not to just toss one back. So that's the one place where Mad Men is wrong. I want to get that on the record. Well, yeah, this is a fascinating book on how on the on the evolution, not just of pro sports, but of sports writing and how the two have have evolved in the last half century. Yes, when I say that my wife talked me into writing the book, Morgan Entrick and the, the, the editor, he suggested that I put in stuff about sports writing as well, and I'm glad that he did, and I scattered a few sort of anecdotal chapters. I don't want anybody to think this is sports writing 101. I, I, I wanted to have fun with it, but at the same time, to give people a sense of where sports writing started and, and where it's wandered and meandered and how it's got to where it is today. But even if you were even if you were writing sports writing 101, what you're writing about today as sports writing 101 would have been very different from what you would have written in the 60s. Oh, absolutely, because so much has changed, particularly in the technology, has forced changes. Um, television, of course, first. All of a sudden, we, that is, sports writers, could not bring you the game. We couldn't tell you the game. You saw the game. I didn't have to tell you that the center fielder caught the ball. You saw it. And you saw it just as well as I did. And so as a consequence, we had to change uh, the influence of what we were doing and to go behind the scenes more and more, which sometimes resulted in, in the athletes getting angry because before there had been sort of a gentleman's agreement that... Uh, what went on off the field was pretty much ignored. And now, of course, the Internet has changed things once again, not only for sports writing, but for all journalism. And where in the world that takes us, God only knows. It's almost got to the point where they don't need people like you and me. This morning, I, I clicked a link to go to what they said was a, a, a video of Cole Hamels hitting Bryce Harper. All right, so I go to the video expecting an ESPN clip. No, it was some guy in the stands with a high-definition video camera, and he, he taped this, this whole sequence for me. That's what you saw. That's you, what saw. The thing that annoys me, though, is that there is a place for sports writing because sports is drama. Sports is glamour. Sports is interesting people doing fascinating things with climaxes. People win, people lose. And so there are great stories there. Where I think we've gone wrong is we have been overwhelmed by numbers, and we want to tell our stories with statistics rather than humanity. And I'm glad to say I think there's been something of a switchback. I think that more and more people in sports writing are realizing that it is storytelling more than anything else, and that, I believe, is our future. But there are some people who don't think we have a long enough attention span for that anymore. Um, I've got to believe that there are always going to be a few people. It does scare me. It scares me not only about reading sports stories, but reading long, investigative, important pieces that people will skip them and just text and texting is not writing, nor is it reading. 
but I am afraid that there will always that there will be in the future a situation where the intelligentsia, a word we haven't heard very recently, will develop the people who read. And there'll be a lot of other people who will be sort of optionally illiterate, able to read but won't read. But I've got to believe that there will be, there will be people who will read stories for as long as humanity exists. After the short break, Frank DeFord explains why it's not just about how you play the game. It really is about whether you win or lose. Now back to my 2012 interview with Frank DeFord. You've got great stories in this book. I mean, just two or three that stick in my mind. You have, you're, you're at a, a damp, rainy Crosley Field in 1964 watching the Phillies try to desperately hang on to the pennant they had thought they had locked up. And there's three guys down at the other end of the press table just hooting and hollering, just having a grand old time doing anything but covering the game. Yeah, and I, I was the kid. I was 24, 25, and they were ancient veterans of 30 or so. And I so much wanted to be with them, oh, to be accepted into their coterie. But they didn't know me from Adam. And then there was a wonderful old sports writer named Jimmy Callan, who was really good, by the way. He was a terrific sports writer, very original. Wrote a, wrote a column about once every week or so called Nobody Asked Me But, in which he made the most... I've never lasted to the end of a movie where people wore togas, that kind of thing. <laughs> Who can resist a woman with a gardenia in her hair, and so forth. Anyway, Jimmy was there, and Jimmy was something of an old curmudgeon, and he was furious. And because I was quiet, he, he, he took it that I was a very serious student of the game, and we bonded. Beyond that, Bill, you have to read the book to find out <laughs> the denouement of the story. Now, equally poignant, more so probably, is you have a chapter on the greatest thing you ever saw an athlete do, talking about Arthur Ashe. Yeah. That, and you, and you read, the, you read the, 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 the title of the chapter and you naturally think it's going to be some extraordinary athletic event, but it wasn't that at all. We were in South Africa in 1973 when apartheid still existed, and Arthur was there as the first performer, athletic or otherwise, to break the color line. turned out to be pretty important. It was only two decades later in which Nelson Mandela was president of the country. He was then in Robben Island in jail. Who in the world would have imagined it? And Arthur was asked to debate a professor from Stellenbosch University, which is sort of the uh, Africana Harvard, on the subject of apartheid. And I think to myself, at the time, I thought nothing of it because I knew how bright Arthur was. But to put an athlete, a young athlete, up against a professor whose specialty was anthropology on his home grounds... It was the most extraordinary thing in the world, especially since Arthur won. Arthur got the last word in, and, and well, it was like a, a serve that clipped the corner <laughs> and won the tiebreaker. It was extraordinary, and Arthur was the athlete that I was closest to personally, and so it, it looking back, means even more to me. 
got another chapter in which you discuss how I'm, I'm paraphrasing you very broadly here because I can't duplicate your writing, but how winning probably means much more to athletes than we think and how losing stings more than we might think. You tell the story of Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson. Tom Watson remembered every little tiny detail about that win, and Jack Nicklaus said, he told you, he didn't remember anything? Yeah, it, was, it was a fabulous British Open that had been played at Turnberry, and this was ten years later, and I was doing a reprise because the British Open was returning to to Turnberry, and I interviewed both of these guys. This extraordinary, um, really, it was match play. They were like twelve strokes ahead of everybody else. I mean, it was unbelievable. And they just one would birdie a hole, and then the other one would top him, and on and on and went this way. And just as you said, Watson remembered everything, and not only <clears throat> not only remembered everything, but ended up crying happily crying just just the memory of of something that had happened many years before nicholas on the other hand who i knew at first retired to resist me I, oh frank you don't want to talk about that that kind of thing finally pinned him down if you will and even then he would only talk to me while he was practicing his putting and it only occurred to me then bill after all the years i'd been in the business how much it meant to these guys to win and how much it hurt them to lose. That was the lesson here. Not who won, not who lost, but that they really do care, even even the great ones who've won a lot, like Nicholas. I remember I talked to Tracy Austin once, and she said after she'd beaten... Um, um, I'm totally blanking on... on uh, Chris Everett? Thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd yeah. know. She said she was walking through the locker room and happened to glance and see Chris Everett sitting on the table hunched over crying. And she thought at that moment, at that moment, she's on a Tom Watson kind of high. Yeah. And she's thinking, wow, I made Chris Everett cry. Yes. And, and, and we, they're so good, these athletes are, when they stand up in defeat and, and pretend that, well, it's just another game. I did the best I could. And you win some and you lose some. But it means... It means a great more to them than we ever imagined. And I was too stupid to understand that until the Watson-Nicholas story. Ten years later, it still meant so much to both of them. Now, maybe you could shed light on something else then. When I watched, say, the NBA Finals, the winning team goes off the court, they're all full of smiles. The losing team, it looks like you just run over their dog. But the coaches walk off the court with identical expressions on their faces. What makes them different? I think coaches are, I think coaches learn that there'll always be you know more days for them, more chances and and I imagine they're not quite as invested as a player I mean I know that's a strange thing to say, but of course a, a coach cares, but really he's a manager he's managing the enterprise he's not that intimately involved with it and yes, I know coaches who have been that much more emotional. But, you know, they're just that one step uh, uh, replaced, displaced from the guy who's actually in the ring, the guy who's actually on the 50-yard line, the guy who's actually at bat. And just that, that slight distance, I think, makes them a little less emotional. I can remember talking to, to Earl Weaver after the Orioles lost the... A World Series in which they'd been ahead three games to one. 
And he was so dispassionate about it. I mean, I know how much he cared, but he just said, you know, we hit a slump. You hit those slumps, it doesn't make any difference whether it's July or October. There ain't nothing you can do about it. And he was a little, perhaps, more colorful in his language than that. But basically, he was able to step back and analyze it, where I think Brooks Robinson and Franks Robinson and Boog Powell probably took it a, a, a little more tougher. Apparently, he had more restraint than Lee Elia did when the uh, Cubs went to, what, 4-13 and 13 that year. You know, that's still one of the best, most watched videos on YouTube, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not to say yes. that managers don't lose it. I knew Lou Pinello pretty well, too. <laughs> I think what, what I tried to do with the book was to make it chattier than I usually do. And, and, and also, it's almost like a series, to my mind, and what I tried to do, is a series of short stories. You can read chapter two, and then chapter three is going to be an entirely different adventure for you. And, and, I, and I thought, that's life. Life doesn't follow a nice, simple path. Life is very jagged. And, and that's what I wanted here. So a little bit about me, a little bit about sports writing, a lot about the people that I knew, but all kind of thrown together. Yeah, a little chronology accurately, but I let myself bounce around as much as I wanted to in the hopes that people would just find me friendly. Frank DeFord died in 2017. He was 78. And you can find easy Amazon links to Frank DeFord's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my interviews with two other well-known sports writers, sportscasters, my 1994 conversation with The Washington Post's Tom Boswell. I don't think the games teach character. I think they tend to reveal character, the pressure of, of being in a situation that you have said, this is important to me. This really matters whether we win this game or not. Um, money does the same thing. And my 1993 conversation with Roy Firestone. And after a while, I forgot who I was talking to, like the 35th president of the United States. It felt like I was talking to my dad about baseball. You know, Mookie Wilson and Dykstra. You can't platoon those two. Uh, you got to have them take their swings. <laughs> and, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we continue our observation of Black History Month, my 1992 interview with one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, General Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. What we were able to demonstrate and achieve in World War II would be a determining factor in the future of blacks in the Army Air Corps and in the armed services of the United States once World War II was over. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.